on the television, I think it must have been Friday, just a few minutes of the Michael Pertillo programme. I'm not sure if you've seen it. He goes, um, well, there's one where he goes around the UK on, on a train. He's got this old guidebook. And he goes to all these places that are in the book on the train. And this one is going around Europe. And uh, we saw just a few minutes, but in the few minutes that we saw, we saw Michael Pertillo in the middle of ruins in Rome, trying to imagine what this great city and what this great empire would have looked like 2,000 years ago. The world has seen a lot of great cities, a lot of great empires, a lot of great kingdoms come and go. But Scripture tells us that there is one kingdom which will never end, which will never fall, which will never die, the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus in the Gospels has a lot to say about this kingdom, about his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And I'd like for us uh, this morning to look at one of the teachings of Jesus on the kingdom of heaven from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 20, and we will read together from verse 1. Matthew 20, verse 1. It's page 987 in the Pew Bible. So, Matthew chapter 20 and verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who, were, who have borne 
the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Amen. The story that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 20 would have been a familiar one to the people who first heard it. Uh, A man owns a lot of land, and on that land he has at least one vineyard. The grapes are ready to be picked. There's a lot of them. So he goes into the town, into the marketplace to find men who are willing to come and to work, men who are willing to come and to pick the grapes from his vineyard. He gets up early, he heads out, he finds men, he offers to pay them a denarius for their day's work. That's a fairly generous uh, sum of money. It's the money that a Roman soldier would have been paid for a day's work. So for a manual laborer, that's a good wage. It's more than enough to provide for their needs and for the needs of their family. Then the third hour comes. That's nine o'clock in the morning. He needs more workers to work in his vineyard, so he heads back into the town, back into the marketplace, and he hires more men. He sees some who are doing nothing, verse 3, and he employs them and promises to pay them what is right doesn't seem like a very good contract for the workers, uh, but in the absence of other offers, these men agree to go with him, to trust him, and to work for him. Then the same thing happens on the sixth hour, that's midday. Again on the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon. And then in the eleventh hour, he goes again. It's 5 p.m. now, and the working day is nearly done. But he sees more men doing nothing. He asks them why, and they tell him simply that it's because no one has employed them. No no one has offered them work. But he does. He does. Maybe these men weren't the fittest or the strongest or the youngest. For whatever reason, no one else had offered them work. But he does, even now at 5 p.m., even now on the 11th hour, even now when the working day is nearly done, he takes them back to his vineyard and sends them to work. Before long, the working day comes to an end and the workers line up for their pay. They are to line up Uh, you know, the the last who were employed are the first in the queue to receive their wages. And they receive a full day's wage, even though they've only worked an hour. 
So you can imagine what the, the men at the back of the line are expecting when their turn comes. They think, well, these guys only worked an hour and they got a full denarius. We're going to be rich because we've worked the whole day. By the time we get to the front of the queue, who knows how much money the landowner might give to us. But the next worker comes and the next and the next and each one is given one denarius for the work that they did. And so when the ones at the end of the line, the ones who were there first thing in the morning till the end of the working day get to receive their wage, they begin to grumble against the landowner, verse 11. And our question, I suppose, this morning is this. Are they right to grumble? Are they right in thinking that the landowner has done wrong? You might say, well, of course they're right in grumbling. Of course that's the right response. They should be on the phone to uh, Len McCluskey or uh, to their, uh, their union rep or to the Daily Record or to the Airdrie and Coat Bridge advertiser. This is not fair. It's not fair that the men who worked only an hour get the same wage as those who worked the full day long in the scorching heat of the sun. How can that be fair? How can that be right? Well, there are a few things that we need to bear in mind here. And the first of those is this. No one else offered them work. It wasn't as if there was a queue of landowners all fighting to get the, the workers to come to their vineyards uh, to pick their grapes. No one else offered them work. No one else offered them a wage. And in those days, in that culture, you know, your daily wage was what you used to provide food for your family for that day. You didn't have savings accounts. You didn't have freezers, much to stock up, to store food away. Your daily wage was what you needed to provide food for your family, to provide your daily bread. And no other landowner offered them work, offered them a wage, offered to provide for them what they needed to provide for their families. So they should have been full of gratitude, not full of grumbling. In John chapter 6, some of the disciples of Jesus start to grumble. Jesus' teaching is becoming hard, and many of the disciples, John tells us, began to leave Jesus, began to walk away because it was just too much, too hard. And Jesus rebukes them. John then goes on to say, uh, from this time forth, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And Jesus says to them, you don't want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Who else offers to provide for our needs? Even 
our greatest need. Who else is able to provide forgiveness for our sin? To provide what Jesus calls life in all of its fullness? To, to, to bring us into right relationship with God? To give us life eternal? To give us a living hope? To give us lasting joy and peace which passes understanding. Who else is willing and able to provide that for us? No one but King Jesus. And if we have all that, then what cause do we have to complain? We ought to be people marked by gratitude and not by grumbling. The issue for the workers actually is a very common one. They don't really have a problem with the landowner uh, in terms of what, what the landowner pay them. So they're very happy at the start of the day to agree to one denarius for one day's work. So they don't have a problem with what the landowner is giving them for that work until they begin to look at what others are getting. They're happy to agree to a denarius a day, but when they start looking at others and comparing themselves, competing in a competition that only exists in their own minds, then things start to go wrong. They begrudge the generosity of the landowners to the other people who have worked in his vineyard, to the newcomers who have picked less grapes and worked less hours. Look at verse 12. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us. There's a problem. You have made them equal to us. You have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. What does that phrase remind you of in Scripture? You've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. When I read that, it reminded me of the response of the elder brother. When the father reaches out in joy and in love as he sees the prodigal son come home. The elder brother doesn't share in that joy. No, he says, all these years I've been slaving for you. And now he comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him. Is that what it was? Is that what his relationship with his father was? All these years I've been slaving for you. Didn't he realize that to be with his father is joy? To work for his father was to know fulfillment. Shouldn't he be thankful for all those years with his father while his younger brother is out 
trying to find satisfaction in sin. He's not a cruel boss. He's a loving father. Remember the response of the father in that story? He says, my son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father loves the elder brother and the younger brother. And the father's love is not diluted by the love that he has for the prodigal, for the younger brother. No, he loves them both equally, lavishly, generously. And they ought to rejoice in the love that their father has for them both together. The well of God's goodness never runs dry. He is the fount of every blessing, as we sang just a few moments ago. And that fount will never run dry. No matter how many come in to receive the blessings that Jesus gives to those who turn to Him and trust in Him, He never runs out. It's not rationed. It's not that there's a limited supply and we don't want others to come in because if they receive those blessings from God, then what we have will be diminished in some way. How how demeaning to God and how ridiculous. Why would you want God to withhold His grace and His blessings from others? Like Jonah. Remember Jonah eventually, after all of those chapters, uh, running away from God, what, three out of four chapters, three quarters of the book, he's on the run from God, trying to escape God's call on his life to go to Nineveh and to proclaim the message that God has given him. Eventually, after the incident with the fish, he, he relents and he obeys and he goes, and he speaks, and amazingly, this wicked city repents. It hears the warning that comes from the lips of Jonah, and they are filled with fear, and they have faith in this God of whom Jonah speaks, and there's this period of essentially national Repentance, remarkable repentance. And God has compassion on them and relents and doesn't bring the disaster that he had threatened upon that city. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah should have rejoiced 
in the generosity and in the grace of his God. The elder brother should have rejoiced in the generosity of his father. The workers should have rejoiced in the generosity of the landowner, the one who regarded his workers, all of his workers, verse 13, as friends. But they didn't rejoice, no, they grumbled. They wanted this generosity, this grace, this goodness for themselves, but not for others, for others that they deemed less worthy than them. That is a misunderstanding of the nature of grace. They don't earn God's favor. It comes from the generosity and from the grace and from the love and from the goodness of God. It's amazing that people could be so selfish. Amazing until we examine our own hearts, honestly. Haven't there been times in which we have deemed others less worthy than us? Haven't there been times when we have wanted, truth be told, others to fail and us to succeed? Where we've rejoiced quietly in our own minds, in our own hearts, when we've seen others stumble and fall. Haven't there been times when we have wanted others to be kept away from some of the blessings that come from God, some of the blessings that we want to keep to ourselves? What an affront to grace and to God. How out of sync with the King and His kingdom. Jesus says, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Those who humble themselves to love and to serve others, those who lift others up, those who are happy to be least and to be last, those who want the best for others, those who pray for good things to happen, for their brothers and sisters, for good things to happen to those who don't yet know Christ, for good things to happen to those that they would regard even as their enemies. They are those who God Himself will lift up at the right time. They are those who are first in the eyes of God. But those who believe that they deserve to be first, will find themselves humbled by Him. Our passage starts with the word for, one of those very short words which is very important as you're reading the Bible. It points us to the context, points us back. So, this uh, story is told in response to what has come before. You'll see in chapter 19 the story of the rich young ruler who wanted to earn his way into the kingdom of heaven, earn eternal life by his good deeds done. 
and who went away from Jesus disappointed because he would never be good enough. Then we go back a bit further and we see the little children in Jesus. The little children in the culture of the day are regarded as the least. They are of little significance. And yet Jesus takes the least and honors them and holds them up as an example for the others, those who are most, those who are bigger, those who are stronger, to follow and to learn from. And then as we go back to chapter 18, we'll see uh, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They are fighting, they are competing with each other to be first, to be greatest. They are competing for power and for privilege. And Jesus wants them to know that that is the very antithesis of the kingdom of God. They are to compete, to love each other and to honor each other and to serve each other. Not to compete to be greatest and to be first and to be biggest and to be best. And how often in the early church did the Jewish followers of Jesus show a reluctance to believe that the Gentiles could come into the family of God as sons and daughters of God with all of the privileges that they believed were rightfully theirs. But that is the nature of grace. It's not that they had earned favor with God. It flowed from the generosity of God, from the goodness of God, from the love of God. And now, if God wanted from His love, from His generosity, from His grace to bring Gentiles into the family of God, who were they to question? Who were they to grumble? Who were they to complain? And how often in churches today do those of us who have been coming and serving for a long time like to think that we are in some way more important than those who are new to the church, new to the faith. We think our voice carries more clout than theirs because we have been laboring, we've been struggling, we've been working for years. We've been bearing the brunt of the work in the scorching sun. Is that what the Christian life is? Is that what Christian service is? Is it miserable? Is it earning you brownie points in the eyes of God? No, it's joy. It's joy to know the goodness of God. It's joy to follow and to serve Christ. And when others come, all we ought to do is to rejoice with them, to rejoice for them. They come right in. They are children of God just like us, with the Spirit of God living within just like us. They're able to come before the throne of God, the throne of grace, with boldness just like us. We ought to begrudge no one the same grace and love that we have found in Christ. We ought to want to long to pray that others would share in these same blessings. It's a great thing to not need to compete, 
to be first. It's, it's liberating to be free from that way of thinking, that way of life, to trust ourselves to God and to love others as He has loved us. Chesterton said, gratitude is the mother of all virtues. It is when we are amazed by the grace of God that we overflow with gratitude. And from that gratitude comes a freedom to be humble enough to love others and to put others first. The freedom to rejoice when we see others receive the blessings that Jesus provides for His people. Even if they come late, even if they come at the very end, like the thief on the cross, we marvel at the grace of our God and we give thanks that another sinner like us has come home. May we know the joy of being grateful to God for His grace and rejoice when the Ninevehs repent and when the prodigals come home and when the owner of all provides for the needs of others from the riches of His grace. May we rejoice in the freedom that we have in Christ to humble ourselves and to put the needs of others first as Jesus humbled Himself by dying on the cross for our sins. It is those who are happy to be last that are first in the eyes of God. That is the nature of our King and His kingdom. And so I close with the words of the Apostle Paul, who says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. You might say made himself last, or made himself the least taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.